Lord, we need your help. I need your help. Amen. Amen. You may take your seats. Isaiah chapter 11. The first couple of verses, we've already read it, read it and heard it. The first couple of verses, just for homiletic emphasis, a shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in this fear. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his waist and faithfulness and fidelity, the belt around his loins. The wolf is going to lie down with the lamb, the leopard with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child is going to lead them. With your prayers and the Holy Spirit's power, speak this morning from the topic, playing hide and seek with God. Playing hide and seek with God. On January 30th, 1933, world history took a dark and dramatic turn. The full populist Nazi party rode the waves of social insecurity to power. The reasons are many. There was German resentment. Following Germany's defeat in World War I, many longed for a strong leader who could help restore the nation to its perceived prior glory. There was economic anxiety. Many so-called pro-Germans exploited the depression and said it was a result of internationalism in general and the Treaty of Versailles in particular. And there was heightened racism. If only the true Germans, the Aryan race, could reclaim their rightful place in German society, they could then make Germany great again. No longer would the League of Nations bully Germany into submission. The Duschvolk were tired of what they saw as feckless and effeminate leaders. They were fed up with the soft and conciliatory leadership elite class. They needed vigor. They needed a forceful leader who could establish law by decree and power by pronouncement. They needed a strong man. 
Someone who exuded authority and who didn't apologize for his race pride. They needed a fearless Führer. And they found him in the person of Adolf Hitler. Within weeks of being named chancellor, Adolf Hitler went about his unification and synchronization campaign. He attacked the media. He blasted the media as untrustworthy because it was, in his words, controlled by a Jewish elite. He purged government jobs. His restoration of the civil service decreed that all government employees must be of Aryan stock. And he attacked the academy anti-intellectualism coming from his breath. Even that spring, the German Student Association at places like the University of Berlin read the, led the actions against the un-German spirit rally. Bonfires were held and a range of authors were thrown into smoke. Helen Keller, Jack London, and Albert Einstein were burned to ashes, and this led the Jewish-turned-Lutheran poet Heinrich Hein to make a chilling yet prescient pronouncement. Hein declared, where books are burned, they will in the end burn people. It should not surprise any of us, my friend. That after going after the media, after going after civil service jobs, after going after the academy, there was one final place for Hitler to turn his sights. He came after the church. The Fuhrer principle decreed that all Jews, and even those of Jewish descent that had converted to Christianity, all of them should be expelled from Christian communion. Church leaders, church leaders who were sympathetic to the Nazi movement helped to establish a German Christian church. And in an odd twist of theological irony, they referred to themselves as the positive Christian movement. Not all of these Christian leaders agreed with Hitler about everything, but many liked his commitment to law and order. Yeah, many pastors thought he was a little excessive and eccentric, but they des desired a strong national church, and they saw aligning with the Nazis as the best means to attain this goal. And then there were even those naive Christian leaders who strongly believed that if the church's prestige was restored in Germany, then they could then influence the Fuhrer. They could help him move in a more positive direction. They could have Christian influence upon Hitler, they declared. My brothers and sisters, I offer this scene and I offer this particular historical setting in order to frame today's scripture lesson for the dilemma that the church faced in Nazi Germany was similar to the situation that the prophet Isaiah was confronting in our text this morning. Isaiah, he had to ask similar ethical questions of himself. 
What do you do? What do you do when it seems like your back is against the wall? What are you willing to compromise? When it seems like your moral options are disaster on one hand and catastrophe on the other hand, and how do you live in the present when your future seems so much bleaker than your past? The prophet Isaiah was trying to encourage the kingdom of Judah. Judah's leaders were living in fear. The kingdom had gone through a rough patch. The heydays of King David and King Solomon were a distant memory. The days of prosperity and peace seemed so far removed. And since that time, even the nation had found itself in a civil war. The kingdom was divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south and the mighty empire of Assyria had pretty much taken control of the northern kingdom and it had Judah right in its sight line. This led Judah into what Isaiah felt was a series of unrighteous and unethical compromises. Judah's king Hezekiah, he forged an alliance with Egypt. Judah invested more resources in military defense than concern for the masses of their people. And their compromise with Egypt, the presumed source of their protection, only actually ended up hastening their downfall. They were led by fear, not by their faith. They were led by their fear of Assyria, not by their fear of God. They were led by fear of what the future holds, not what God had promised them. They were concerned with self-protection, not God's commandments. This is why, my brothers and sisters, here in chapter 11 of the text, we see one of the central themes of Advent that Isaiah is offering up to us. The central theme of what does it mean to live a life of faith and patience. Isaiah, he reminds the people that you've been here before. Yet God went into the house of Jesse and he found a leader named David. And from the stump of Jesse, a branch is, is able to grow out of those roots. And it's out of that same house of Jesse that we have to believe that a branch is still going to grow out of those roots. For if we remain rooted in God's soil in due time, the vision that God gave us for a just society shall come to pass. One is coming. One is coming, my brothers and sisters. One is coming. Do not be fooled by imitations. The day is coming. Do not be deceived by gimmicks. The bright morning star shall rise. You shall live in a world where wisdom and understanding will prevail. You shall live in a world of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This world will be defined by righteousness for the poor and the afflicted. This world will be ordered by equity. This world will know peace and justice. This world, we will see the lion and the lamb laying down together, living in harmony. This is the vision that you and I must hold on to. 
We cannot fall into false alliances. We cannot allow fear and anxiety to cause us to stray. You must have patience, Isaiah declares. And I'm here to say to us this morning, as you and I prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord, we must remember that patience takes a few forms. First, the first thing is this, patience must be coupled with preparation. Patience is not passive waiting. Patience involves the right kinds of preparation. Well, why do we hold on to this vision of what a just, righteous, and peaceful kingdom ought to look like? Ah, oh, because by doing so, we're preparing ourselves each and every day by striving to live out this world despite the difficulties, despite the seeming defeats, despite the drama that's associated with life. We must resist becoming discouraged. For when we become discouraged and we become impatient, when we become discouraged and we take shortcuts for self-protection, when we become discouraged and let cynicism overtake us, what are we doing? We're actually hiding from God. Yeah, we're hiding from God. This is what the great German theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel believed. Abraham Joshua Heschel said that it made perfect sense that the first question asked in scripture is from God to humanity. Where art thou? For Adam's greatest sin for Heschel wasn't that Adam ate the apple. His greatest sin was after he ate the apple, he concocted an alibi. That's to say we sin and then we hide. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that this morning that when I think from a historical perspective that by aligning with the Nazi party in search of relevance, the Christian church in Germany was hiding from God. By aligning with Egypt in search of protection, the kingdom of Judah was hiding from God. And how often? Do we as individuals or we as a nation, how often do we hide from God? We lose patience. We lose faith. We lose our sense of perseverance. And therefore we find God asking, where art thou? How often do you and I hide from God when things don't seem to quite be going our way? How often do you and I forget or ignore God's vision of love and justice in order to seek our own secret paths? Well, I'm here to say this morning that too many people today are living in misery because we've sacrificed patience and preparation for a shortcut to perceived success. Oh, I know the questions that some of you are thinking. I talk about this with students all the time. Hmm, why does it seem like I'm the only one that's not thriving? I volunteer my time to help others. I've committed myself to anti-racist and anti-sexist politics. I don't drink, I don't smoke, yet 
Why does it seem like all the cool kids are becoming part of an exclusive and elite clubs? Why are all the popular kids the ones that are hooking up with one another? Why is it that it's the young ladies that are dancing on the tables and the young men that are puking in the corners that are getting invited back to the parties and are getting past the velvet rope each week? Maybe if I just loosen up a little bit, you know, for networking purposes. Can anybody hear the voice of God saying, where art thou? Or why am I the only one in my graduating class not experiencing financial success? I'm sick of graduate school. I'm tired of playing by the rules. I'm tired of doing things this way when it seems like everybody else is getting over. If I just strike this one side deal, if I can just get with, you know, that group of people over there, I know they're a little shady, but I can keep it all in perspective. I won't get caught up. Just this one time. Can anybody hear the voice of God saying, where art thou? My brothers and sisters, I've even noticed such ethical compromise from the Christian church in this nation. Many of my evangelical brothers and sisters seem to think that by aligning with perceived power, they can upgrade the status of the Christian church in this nation. They can have access to presidents and kings. They can get funding for their schools. They can influence public policy. Some even believe that they can upgrade, upgrade the body and the blood of Christ, the caviar and Christi. They don't realize that they're reducing the blood and the body of Christ to red Kool-Aid and saltine crack. Tastes sugary sweet and it provides a fleeting flavor, but it's empty and it's void of power and sustenance. You and I, we have to have a more patient view of God's kingdom, a vision that you and I are willing to prepare ourselves for each day. But not only that, we have to be persistent in articulating that vision. For it's only in our preparation and in our persistence that we can begin to approximate what God's ideal of love and justice might look like in this world. The kind of ideal articulated here in Isaiah chapter 11. This is at the core of God's promises and it's the source of our power as people of faith. For power gained by compromising the core teachings of our faith is nothing more than unadulterated corruption. Access gained by the key tenants sacrificing the key tenants of our faith is nothing more than unbridled idolatry and alliances formed in the name of real politic without ethical principles. That's nothing more than unmitigated gangsterism. You and I need to know today that we serve a God who ranks higher than all earthly powers. 
And thus we believe in ethical ideas that are stronger than pragmatic and political associations. Well, am I suggesting that in this life there's no room for compromise? Of course not. I believe in democratic deliberation. Am I suggesting that in this life there's no need to find creative solutions to complex problems? Absolutely not. But I am saying that we must be careful not to let our pragmatism mask our cynicism. For as soon as the art of the deal or the cult of the practical become our guiding moral principles, we reduce God's kingdom to the smallness of this world. We toss our Christian moral compasses right out the window. We do nothing but hide from God. Concern for the poor becomes concern for self-protection. Care for the vulnerable becomes you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. And our commitment to justice becomes a commitment to the 11th commandment. Thou shalt not get caught. We end up hiding from God. This is why I believe we have to heed the words of the great American poet James Weldon Johnson. Lest our feet stray from the places our God where we met thee. Lest our hearts drunk from the wine of the world we forget thee. The words of Isaiah serve as a reminder that we have to show Patience when things don't quite seem to be going our way. We can't get antsy. We can't get anxious. When life begins to take a different turn than we expected, we can't go jumping out the baddest box of life. I'm using this metaphor here intentionally, Brother Lawson, because it's based on an early lesson I learned from sports as a kid. I played Little League Baseball. I remember I was about eight or nine at the time, and there was a kid named Jimmy Bethea. At the age of nine, Jimmy Bethea was about five foot ten. <laughs> and he could throw a curveball like a major leaguer. It was pretty scary for an eight or nine-year-old child. I can recall feeling like the ball was coming straight at my head. Several of us, when we went to the plate, we ducked out of there when the pitch was on its way. On one occasion, I can remember getting up to bat, and I hit the ground because I just knew the ball was going to hit me. And I looked up and I heard the umpire say, strike! Next time, we were scheduled to play Jimmy's team. Our coach gave us powerful words of encouragement. His name was Coach Dennis. Coach Dennis said, he said, a curveball pitcher will try to deceive you. He wants to trick you. He wants to make you doubt your own vision and your own judgment. But if you just remain calm and remain patient and keep your feet firmly planted in the batter's box, you can hit that ball just like any other pitch. Oh, my brother David, since I was the leadoff batter, I remember going first, and I went out there, and I looked straight at Jimmy Bethea. 
I knew he wanted to trick me. I knew he wanted to deceive me. I knew he wanted to make me doubt myself. So I stayed calm. I remained patient. I trusted my vision. And when he threw that first pitch, I reared back and I pop. I hit that ball over the fence. No, I'm lying, I struck out. <laughs> but don't let the fact that I was a terrible baseball player <laughs> obscure the greater lesson that Coach Dennis taught us that day. A lesson that I've pulled from on so many different occasions over the years. Life can come at you like a curveball. But if you and I are patient, and if we're prepared, and if we're persistent, there's no reason to give up hope. We can keep on trusting the vision that we have. For one day, the lion and the lamb will lay down together. One day, the wicked will cease from troubling, and the weary will be at rest. One day, religious hypocrisy will be silenced, and God's truth will be unleashed. And one day, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Why? If we stand in there, if we're patient, if we're prepared, and if we persevere, then there's no reason for you and I to go hiding from God.